Welcome to Business Drivers, the podcast dedicated to helping you be a more effective digital leader. Each episode, we connect you to the people and ideas that unlock new growth, both professional and personal. Business Drivers is presented by Farron, and I'm your host, Jim Keen. Our guest for this podcast episode is Pooja Newcomb. Pooja is a people, process, and tech transformation leader for large organizations. She's coaching these orgs, mostly tech and finance teams, through difficult but necessary transformations. She got her start in finance, but quickly moved into roles where change is apparent, but transformation is critical. So think changing of objectives, of process, generally of the way that people are organized and the way people work. The majority of her recent work has been with tech orgs that are moving to product teams while still managing a portfolio of projects. Oh man, I love this talk. It's rare to get a chance to go deep with a leader, somebody like Pooja, who really understands all the drivers of organizational effectiveness, not just the way that teams are orged, not just the way that they're working or the tools they're using, but the leadership dynamics, good manager behaviors, and alignment of objectives. We talked about how to convince the marketing and finance orgs, why it's so important to move to the product model, and we got some really clear insights into the power of product teams that persist and stay together over time. And we got a great set of answers about the issue of funding your product team too. Pooja is super smart and I learned a ton from this talk. She gave me a little bit of free coaching along the way about how to develop my own EQ and some really good insights about how to stay balanced when things are changing really quickly. We should all be so lucky to have such a versatile leader in our friend group or in our network. Somebody like Pooja who's working with us when we're trying to drive change in the org. Thanks so much for tuning in. Hope you like this convo with Pooja. So Pooja, can you describe the work you are doing these days? So Jim, I describe myself as a people process and technology transformation leader. So for the last two decades, I've worked in CPG and I actually started my career in finance. So really as a business person, as a business leader, and about half of my career was in finance. And then I moved to global business solutions and digital and technology. I think what's most exciting is when you think about how those three pieces, people and, and how people evolve and change, process and process improvements, and how technology come together and intersect. So you're a, a renegade finance spreadsheet expert, and you've <laughs> found, your, found your way into people, process, and technology. Is this the work that you've always been dreaming of doing? Like, how, did you, how and why did you make that transition from pure finance into this, this other phase of your career? Oh, it's, it's interesting that you call me an Excel expert because I think my skills are so old and probably so embarrassing for other finance people that are now coming along. Um, but yes, I, I was a finance expert and, and uh, definitely had, you know, thinking about analytics and business case for a very long period in my career. Um, and I think, you know, I was reflecting on this a little bit yesterday with an ex-colleague. I think you should go into roles and spaces that you think are interesting and exciting. And for me, that's definitely what's happened. You know, I, uh, I worked um, on a role in my finance career where we were implementing some technology and some process improvements. And I think that was the moment that the light bulb went off of like, oh, this is really interesting and it's super powerful how these things come together. Um, and then so I just kept pursuing that and, and that's how I kind of evolved into new and different roles. So do you consider yourself still a finance person or are you have you kind of swapped out your self-described identity and are, do you consider yourself now like a change leader? Yeah, I think I do consider myself less of a finance person. I do think I come 
at things with a business lens. And that's a little bit different and a differentiator that I, I wear proudly. Um, as I said, I think I really like working on things that where change is apparent and transformation is important. And so whether that is, you know, related to a technology um, transformation or whether it's about thinking about how we think about our people and our talent um, or whether there are big process changes that need to happen. I, I, I like to think about all of those things together, um, but I, I think I bring a business kind of lens on it because of my finance background. Yeah. And I definitely like to talk about business case. Yeah, clearly. It's it's interesting. You know, when we talked the first time a couple of weeks ago, I thought of you as somebody that has got such a detailed grasp on how the business operates from the lens of finance. But now you're in a role where you're looking holistically across organizations and you're thinking yeah. about culture and org and ways of working and unlocking the talent inside of the people that you're working with. It, it's It's kind of a cool transition from you know, being really good at formulas to cra <laughs> cracking the code on on organizational effectiveness. That's pretty cool. Yeah. Oh, thanks. Th that's that's a great description. Better said. <laughs> so we started talking a while back about some of the experience that you had helping an organization move to a product centric model in the IT organization. So yeah. moving from a classic enterprise IT org that has got a portfolio of IT projects managed by a centralized PMO and a governance process to more of a flexible way of working through product teams. I think I got that right. Is that generally correct? Yeah, I, you know, I definitely have uh, worked and led product teams um, and helped with that transition over to more of a product-centric model. The thing that I would say is that in my experience um, in the organization that I was a part of, we definitely had more of a hybrid model where we still did kind of more project-based um, work and models. And then we also had the product-centric model. So we definitely had both things, which I think a lot of big organizations probably do. Um, and there are reasons to do both, I would say. Yeah, it's never going to be either or. Um, right. So you're probably uniquely qualified to try to give me a good answer to the question I'm about to pose. Um, pretend for a second that you were asked to explain why product teams are valuable to a CMO that, you know, hadn't really had a chance to think about this. What would you explain to her? Like, why are organizations turning themselves inside out to become product centric versus the old way of doing IT? And what's in it for some functional leader like a CMO? Yeah, I think there's a couple of things, right? The project-based model, right? You would bring together a group of resources from disparate areas. They might not even be full resources, right? You might have half of a project manager and half of a developer, and you bring them together to execute something, and then they would all go away um, and then you'd be left with, okay, well, who's still kind of holding the bag and who's still maintaining this technology? What I'd say to a CMO is moving to a product type model, we're bringing together a dedicated group, group of resources and we're really putting um, the customer at the center of the plate and the reason that we're doing all the things that we're doing. It's also a dedicated team of full-time resources that will work on helping to solve this customer and client's problems. and bring on that change and bring on whether that's the technology or product really quickly. So they'll give you something of value quickly and then they'll continue to make that better and better and better. And so in that way, it's not about 
completing something, you know, crossing it off the list and then moving away. It's about a dedicated team of talent and resources that are really focused on solving business problems and our customers. And they don't go away. And they don't go away, <laughs> right? It's about kind of thinking about things as continuous improvement. It's about getting something out there quickly as a minimal viable product. And then thinking about how do I now make this better? And if it's really at its optimized state, then what is the next problem that's most important for us to solve? And how, what is the best way for us to go about doing that? Well, that is a super, super, super clear articulation of why you would do this. And it makes a lot of sense to me. So thank you for that clarity. If I'm a CMO who doesn't think about this stuff all day long, how would you sort of pitch the benefits to the CMO or somebody that is pretty far removed from the actual day-to-day -day working of those systems that are supported by the product teams. Like what's, what's in it for the CMO? What, what does she get out of it? Yeah, I, I think that's a great question because I think you're right, right? Like why does the CMO care if we're working in one way versus another way? What does it deliver? And so I think I talked a little bit about how you get to a solution quickly, you get to a minimal solution quickly and you continue to improve upon it and that's worth something. I think as I reflect back on, right, trying to pitch some of these ideas to leaders in the past as well, it's also about honestly having a dedicated team that's there and resources that you know you can rely upon mm. that you don't have to go searching for and asking for and then trying to get a project team together for. Like this is a team of people that's there to serve the customer and the client and that product. Um, that is of value to you. And so uh, that for me, if I was the CMO, I'd be like, oh yes, because otherwise it's so hard to navigate through the whole org to get something done and then to pitch it and then for it to happen. But to know I have a group of dedicated resources that are 100% on this project would be really valuable to me. Yeah, I think that is a really key insight that I I don't know if enough, let's call them business leaders. I hate that breakdown, but let's let's call right, them business I leaders. <laughs> That that's a that's a an insight that they might not understand. I think when a lot of um, development product development organizations or IT or tech orgs explain this change, they talk about it from the perspective of value to the tech teams and not okay. enough to the the actual users of the tech. And I think the way that you just described it makes a ton of sense. I want to ask a question about your old job for a second because yeah. one of the things that I think stuck with me as you were describing that is that there's, there's continuity with the team, which leads to improving sort of efficiency over time for that team, I would right. assume. But that also assumes that there's continuity of funding for the work that those teams are doing. That's right. So from your perspective, what are some best practices for leaders that are considering making this shift? Yeah. in terms of how to fund this work. Because it's one thing to set up teams that are product teams and have them work as a product team, but it isn't gonna deliver the effect if you're funding them like projects. Yeah, that's right. So I think like to, to go back a bit too, right? I think in, in the model of project teams, right? You, you have a finance person that makes a call at the beginning of the year or the quarter or whatever, that here's our revenue and here's a percentage of our revenue or whatever metric we're using that we're going to allocate to IT type projects. And then all of the tech groups come together and they say, okay, well, I've got this project and I've got this project and this is my estimate. Um, and here's kind of my budget and here's my scope and here's my plan. 
and here's what I think I can achieve. All of that is done based off of really imperfect information. And that's a bunch of teams kind of that are all should have the same goal, you know, in one company, um, all competing for the same resources, the same dollars and the same people. In a product centric model, you're really funding a team and a product that you think is worthwhile. And then it's about what business outcomes do you want? And how, do you, how does that team go about achieving those business outcomes? It means that talent is really important, but it's also important for us to be able to define what are the actual outcomes that we want, who are our clients and who are our customers, and what are we really trying to achieve? So it is more of an always on or continuous funding model, I would say, versus kind of a decision being made about how much we're willing to spend, trying to see how many things we can fit into that budget and then at the end, you know, sometimes you evaluate, did I actually meet that value or did I not? But you're often doing that with pretty imperfect information. That's super helpful. I, I think the other powerful benefit of funding a product versus a portfolio of projects is what you're getting at with the staffing. Mm -hmm. In the old project-based model, the, the staffing was up and down. People would come in and come out of the projects as the staffing was there. Yes. But in a... A, a continuous funding model that you get under the product approach, you can keep the team there, you have them fully funded, you aren't getting the start stop that you normally get with the budget cycles in the old portfolio funding model. Right. And I, I therefore is also more predictable. Yeah. You say. yeah. 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 And the teams can continue to get more efficient and more effective over time because they're not yeah. starting and stopping due to staffing or budget. Yeah. Yeah. That's exactly right. All right, so now the hard question. As a former finance person. <laughs> oh, another finance question, yes. How did you get finance to agree to this? Pretend for a second that we're talking about a large, let's say Fortune 500 company that is really committed to being consistent with the street. Yeah. You know, the typically IT is funded as a, a cap, you know, it's based on capital and OPEX and it's an expense that needs to be managed down. And they plan it out annually and sometimes semi-annually. How do you get them to stay committed to these product budgets and forecast the spend the right way? Right. So, you know, I will say, and this is as an old finance person, finance people are partners, right? Um, and that's the way to think about them, which means that you get buy-in and alignment early, and you also bring them along on the journey as you continue to evolve into more of a product-based model or, or whatever. But I would say the way that it's probably important to get finance to come along is first to sell in the leaders above them and, and not just finance leaders, but all leaders, right? About why this may be a better model or better suited for these set of products um, and, and why it may not be for other sets of product, you know, projects or platforms or whatever it is. Um, and then once you do get that very high level, even, you know, C-suite alignment, then I think it's about making sure that finance is brought along um, on the journey as well. So I think it's about partnership long-term. Yeah, yeah. All right, I'm gonna ask you one last question on finance, I think, and then then we'll move back to the fun stuff. Okay. So pretend for a second, like well, you're trying to- fun. Let's not, I mean, come on. Well, <laughs> the good finance people are fun. Um, <laughs> So what's the sell-in to the C like to the CEO and to the CFO about yeah. this about this model? So pretend for a second we're talking about an organization that wants to get really good at CRM 
or wants to get really good at data and insights, hypothetically, that, you, you know, you might know some orgs that are good at that or yeah. trying to get good at that. Right. Um, it's a pretty big shift because you got to get, the, you know, the various functional groups lined up and figure out how much they're actually spending. You got to get IT lined up and figure out how much they're actually spending and say, okay, this is what we think we're going to spend to get this capability funded. How do you sell that into the CEO and the CFO that it's a worthwhile time investment? Moving to a product-based model. I'm yeah, trying to like, make sure that I'm answering the question correctly. So pretend like you want to fund CRM like a product. Oh, you know? I see. Yeah. CRM yeah. is the product. It's a it's a capability, but it's going to be managed like a product. How do you how do you sell that into the CEO? Well, I honestly on that question specifically, and now I'm just like spitballing for your awareness too. Yeah. On that question specifically, I don't know that it is that different, right? It's it is about funding a team. It's a longer term, it's a commitment of doing something more consistently and for it to be more outcome-based. But I don't know that it is that different than the way that we would sell in the fact that we were trying to do an SAP transformation, not okay. in a type model, right? Yeah. Um it, and and typically. That's probably actually the, and I don't like this word either, but just for purposes of conversation, it's the business leader that's helping us do that. Yeah. Okay. That makes sense. So then we're selling into the business leader who then is also right. Leading the sell into the CEO. Yeah. Does that? It does. does Okay. (laughs) Okay. Thank you for indulging my questions about finance. I'm getting closer to understand. Like, I think, I think I've got the white paper now in my head. Oh, good. Um, so thank you. So we were talking about why product teams in moving to a product team model works for non-IT, non-software orgs. Yeah. In other words, the functional leaders. But what's in it for the devs? What's in it for the tech team? It might seem self-evident, but I'd love to hear your perspective on why this is a powerful model for the talent. Yeah, I, I do think moving to product teams being in product teams is something that you know good talented tech talent is looking for um i do think it's actually even a talent retention play i think um talented folks are coming in and asking us to work in this way if we're not already working in it um and and so it's important for us to retain talent over time to be working in a way that's you know more innovative and more aligned with the way that you know tech companies are working and ultimately those are the people that you know in my cpg experience that we were competing with for really good tech talent, right? Yeah. It was with the other tech companies. And, and it was actually some of the early key talking points that we had with leaders of like, you know, even just to work in this way is a way that we will retain talent. It's a way that we will attract talent because this is, you know, if we want people to be innovative and working towards the future, it's, it's what we need to do. Is part of the story to the talent, hey, this is a chance to, you know, once you've kind of, gotten to a certain level of excellence with your craft of software and coding, this is a chance to kind of level up and get closer to the strategic choices that really impact the business and the users. Is that part of the pitch? Oh, I I think actually that's a great question. I I think working in a product team uh, model does mean that you get much closer to the business, to the customers, to your clients, and have a, a much deeper business understanding than you would if you were kind of working, a, you know, more separate or further away from a product team type model. I think what's important 
in a product team though, is to not only think about it as our tech people are going to get closer to the business. It also has to work the other way around. And I think that's most evident in a product team model, right? It has to be that our business leaders and our business people and our product owners also are getting really fluent in technology, you know, and, and it may land upon our tech leaders to actually get them there and to help them have that understanding, but the conversation should really go both ways. So it shouldn't just be about, hey, here's kind of our sales process and here's how things work. It should also be, here's our dev process and our testing process that that we're also sharing right back with business leaders, because it's only with that mutual understanding and respect that you truly have a one team approach to product teams. That is such a great insight. Where I have seen this model hit the wall or slow down or stagnate, is when you have some old school, let's call them business people, the old school business people that just literally want to throw the thing over the wall and say, let the IT guys figure it out. And when you try to engage them in some of the things that, some of the choices that need to be made to make the software really drive the business, you can kind of see them roll their eyes and go, just do it for me. And where where I've seen it really become a powerful working relationship is when there has been that fluency between let's call it a marketer or a sales team and the the dev team that's trying to support them so how do you as a change leader kind of help the non-dev people realize like it's worth your time to understand what they're doing because it will really help you grow your career how do you teach them some of that fluency or or make them realize they should have that fluency Well, I think some of that question is really about how do you get started generally, like with product teams and get it started and get it going. And and I think it's about finding a really solid use case of where you think this model might be really helpful or really work well. Mm. And, And where that also starts is finding a leader in that organization that you have, you know, mutual respect for, that's a great partner already, that you know will buy in and shepherd it and champion it. Um, And once you get that leader to kind of buy in on this is the way that things should work, well, of course, you know, things naturally line into place. But I think then you can have a successful use case and use that successful use case to showcase to other areas in the organization of why this is a really powerful way to work. Yeah, it it really does come down to finding the leaders that have the ability to um, to create followers and create influence and to get people to see a better future. Uh, There's a couple leaders that you and I both know that are exceptionally good at that. And I I can think back to a couple instances where these folks have have really changed the way that the whole business works because of the way that they were engaging as dev and tech leaders. And it really can make a difference. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. But, you know, I think the way that I was thinking about it too, was not just the tech leader, but an actual business leader. And we keep going back to that word and I hate it. Maybe the other one we're like right now, (laughs) Um, but non-tech leader, (laughs) a non-tech leader that will really be your change agent and your example of success. You know, and, and I think you have to find one use case of it and then that grows to another use case and another use case. And, you know, before you know it, you know, 40 to 60% of the organization is working in this this method. And it's like, you know, something that is sought after. Yeah. So you've, you've kind of been in the crucible of leadership in a couple different 
highly charged, very difficult contexts. Now that you've had a chance to kind of reflect on the past five or six years of your work, like what are some insights that you've had about leading? Maybe at the personal level or the individual level, like the actual energy and effort and skills of the individual leader. Any any insights that you've gained through this work? Yeah, I I think that's a really great question. And, and it's something that I've been thinking a lot about, particularly, you know, in the last couple of months. And I, and I would say that leading, particularly over the last two years, has been super complex and super challenging because people are nuanced, people's life experiences are nuanced and right, like the way that someone might have needs if there's someone who is alone over the last two years and might feel more isolated is different than the needs of someone on your team that, you know, has just a, a house full of people and kids running around, right? And I think this concept of creating psychological safety amongst your team mm. members and the people that you work with and the people that work for you only really comes when you have two things. And that is the ability to be super vulnerable yourself as a leader and to be real and authentic in that way. But probably even more importantly, to also be able to listen and to have genuine care for the people that you work with, that work for you, that you work for. Okay. I think there's a TED talk in here. I want to unpack this a little bit. (laughs) (laughs) So I'm, I'm slow and I'm from Wisconsin. So you have to kind of break this stuff down. So when you talk about psychological safety, explain a little bit about what you mean by that. I, you know, there's so many ways I think you could talk about it, but I think it's when people feel like they can bring their, their true whole selves to work, right? Whether that means I've got a kid at home and a kid on my lap while I'm having this conversation with you, whether that means I disagree with the way that you handled that situation, or I disagree with the fact that this is the model that we should use. And these are the reasons why I think it's only in instances where you have people who feel that they can have true, honest, open conversations about the real stuff, work-wise or not work-wise. But I just, I think that's the only time that you truly get to a better place versus everyone saying, yeah, sure, that sounds like a great idea, but potentially not really feeling that way or having a side conversation or or a Teams chat while you're having the discussion in the meeting. Yeah. Like the more I think we can be open and allow for people to feel that their voices and opinions matter and should be heard, Um, Like, that's what I think psychological safety looks like. Mm. I need to work on my own personal EQ. So when topics like this come up, I have to really slow down and make sure that I'm really digesting it and and really understanding it. Yeah. Um, Oh, good for you. That makes a lot of sense that you're like really understanding what that means. I love it. Yeah, because it's easy for me to think in spreadsheets and put it in a box and, you know, consider it done. But, you know, when I think about this topic, one of the heuristics for me is, do I believe that the person I'm talking to wants the best for me? Hmm. Do I trust that they're trying to help me achieve what I'm trying to achieve? And do they, are they looking out for my best interest? So I don't know if that's the exact same thing, but We've all been in meetings with somebody where you know they're kind of rattling through in their head, like my objectives for the year are this, my incentive goals are this, my RSUs are going to be affected this way if I, you know, this doesn't happen. And conversely, we've all been in those situations where you know the other person across the table actually really gives a shit about you. Yes, yes. 
you know, my robot brain can't always <laughs> figure that out, but. I'm like, super curious though. Like I, I'd like to continue on this for a second, particularly because you've been talking about EQ. What, how do you know? Like, oh, what would you say? So how do you know? That my EQ is low? No, <laughs> no. How do you know the person actually does care about you? Like, how do you know? What's the difference between someone that does and someone that doesn't? What's the, what, like, what makes you feel like, yeah, this person does. And I know that, and I know that they care about me and I, they care about what I'm trying to do. And this, this person doesn't like, what is the difference between a leader that does that and a leader that doesn't? I think you've just, just earlier, you described the behaviors. I think it comes down to good manager behavior. Like, right. have you, have you connected on a personal level? Do you, yeah. do you know what their aspirations are? Do you know what the context outside of work is? You know, are you incorporating that in your feedback and your guidance and your support? And, you know, as you listen to them, little stuff like, do you remember their children's names? You know, yeah, yeah. have you built a relationship? And then, so then the second thing I think is, have you as a manager explicitly said, I'm here to make sure that your best interests are taken care of. Yeah. And in some cases that might mean that you shouldn't be in this job. And in other cases, it might mean you should be promoted. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So I don't know. I think we might need to do another talk on psychological safety. Um, maybe I need that, but such a great topic. So you, you mentioned listening. When we're all working remotely, when we're all distracted, when we're all stressed by the world going on outside of us, like what are some tools or tricks that you use to make sure that you're actually listening deeply to the people that you're talking to? Yeah, I think that's a really good question. I think it, back to that, that same word, I think it does come from asking questions, right? Versus listening. I, I think the people that I, I know that are really great listeners are people that really let the other person do a lot of the talking and then ask questions to make sure that that person understands that they're engaged and also validates the ways that people are feeling or, or the way that people are talking about certain things or, or whatever. I'll give you an example. I used to be a volunteer crisis counselor on a crisis hotline. Oh my God. And one of the things that they teach you in training, because you have to go through extensive training, obviously for something like this. One of the things that they teach you is it's almost like an NPR approach. It's what you hear them do on NPR. It's you, you repeat what the person has said to you to make sure that they're clear that you have understood what has been said. You use, you say it back in a couple of different words, and then you ask follow-up questions to make sure that the person understands that they are heard and that you are listening and that you care, right? And I think similarly, I can't tell you how much I go back to that learning, you know, in my work life, of course, also in my personal life, which, you know, back to EQ, I think I need to get better at like with my <laughs> husband and my children and my friends probably. Um, but that's just a skill that I think is really important is, you know, when it relates to listening, because it shows someone that you actually care, you understand, and that you want to know more. All of that is dependent on slowing down and being in yeah. the moment. You know, you've been through, as we talked about a little bit, a lot of change it's clear that you're working on intentionality and your leadership skills and your communication skills. You know, how do you stay balanced? How do you stay as an individual? How, how do you stay balanced and, and ready to work and sort of primed to work and, and not let all the change that you're leading grind you down? I think some of it is about 
being really transparent um, and having trust with like the people around you. So like, just as an example, you know, I think in my most recent role was working a lot, was working a lot of hours. The thing that felt out of balance for me is that I didn't see my family for dinner each night. Um, and so I articulated that, you know, after months of working in that way to one of the other leaders that I was working with and that was, I was on a team with, and then she held me accountable. She was like, it's five o'clock. You have to go. I'll see you back online at seven. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> Which, right. I mean, but, but sometimes there are moments in, in your job where you have to do a push and it's for the greater good. Um, and, and that you realize that for me, it was always, I'm very willing to do the push and to put in the hours as long as I know that that's not the norm, right? It's not forever. Yeah. It's because there's, there's something that we're working towards. That's really important. Um, but then there also has to be, you know, the values as well. You have to be able to slow down and balance out the push periods so that you can recover and you can kind of reconnect with your values. Yeah. You tell me how, what about for you? What does that look like? Wait a minute. I'm the one doing the ask the question asking. <laughs> you said make it conversational. I'm just <laughs> So I learned this one the hard way. Um, I, in my corporate days, I pushed it way too hard. I was that jackass that showed up at the office at 530 in the morning. And then, <laughs> wow. yeah. and then, you know, worked till six and then was online until 10 and couldn't sleep. So would be firing off emails at two 30 in the morning and annoyed the crap out of everyone. Right. That, that was my corporate career and I hit the wall and it wasn't good. And I realized outside of work, I, I really like doing endurance sports for me, it's bike riding. And I realized like, in order to get good at that, you have to go through periods of intensity and recovery. And I just realized like, oh my God, I need to be doing that in the rest of my life. So that plus a lot of Buddhism, a lot of meditation, oh, wow. That's a lot awesome. of, a lot of, a lot of creativity. Um, but I, I wouldn't say that I've got it figured out. I, I'm still way out of balance. It's like one of those things that you're never really done, you know, yeah. and, and it, and you always get better at it. And it probably shifts and evolves over time, over your career, depending on role, depending on life stage, even. And you're probably like always striving for it. Right. Yeah. But, but never really done. Yeah. All right. So I have a question for you that I ask all of our guests. This oh, is yeah. not, this is not about work. Okay. So what is a non-work related book or podcast that you recommend? So I have been really into listening to podcasts that talk a lot about the great resignation mm. because that's just such a phenomenon right now that I think yeah. is like, so fascinating. And actually I think is like this really beautiful thing that has come out of like a very difficult two years, right? It's, it's people saying, Hey, I'm reevaluating my life. I'm reevaluating work. These things are aligned to me and my passions and my values and my culture, or they're not right. And so there's a couple of podcasts that I think talk about that a lot. Both of them are by the New York times. So it's the Ezra Klein show. Right. Isn't that, that's like such a good one. Yeah. One, and, one of uh, the best. Yeah. I think it's won a bunch of awards. Um, and then the other one is Sway also on the New York times. Yeah. I like the host of Sway. Yeah. Yeah. She talks a lot about vulnerability actually. Yeah. yeah. All right. Now you got me thinking about the great resignation. So what do you think is going on? Why now? 
obviously yeah. we're going through a pandemic, but what else? Well, I think it's so fascinating. The fact that something like the pandemic, which you, you know, has obviously also caused for people to panic and to, you know, like really buckle down. I would think that something like that would cause for people to be like, I'm going to be risk averse. I'm not, I'm not going to keep yeah. doing what I'm doing. I'm just going to keep on, I'm going to, you know, build savings. I'm going to do all those things. The fact that it has created the dynamics of the opposite of that, for people to critically evaluate their own lives and what they want and what they're passionate about. Yeah. Which by the way, I totally raised my hand. I'm one of those people yeah. who's a part of this great resignation is so empowering. And I think it takes a lot of courage, but it's also just a super cool phenomenon that's creating a really interesting job market with a ton of opportunity. It is definitely creating a dynamic job market is what I would say. Yes. You know, I, I wonder also if there's something really deep going on about the nature of identity in work. I think a lot of people yes. have attached their work to their identity and their their earnings to their identity. And it, it might be that when you are for certain strata of the the workforce, you know, I think it might be one of those things where you you realize like you're working in your basement on PowerPoint at 8 p.m. and you've been in your basement for a you know, year and a half and you just kind of look up one day and go, what the hell am I doing? Is right. <laughs> why? Right. Right. So I don't know. Or I might be projecting one of those two. <laughs> it can be both, though, I think. And, and I do think that's absolutely right. And, and you're forced to face the fact that your now everyday social interactions and all of that is not like encompassed within the four walls of wherever you used to go into work. Right. Yeah. It's actually at your house with your family and you need to critically evaluate is that working in the way that I want it to? And am I focused on the things that I actually should be focused on or want to be focused on? Or am I not? Yeah. Yeah. I'll be curious to see if this is still going on a year from now. Yeah. Um, great resignation uh, specifically, yeah. like people just shifting and moving. Yeah. My, my instinct is there's going to be a lot of like used van life vans on the market. People that sort of sold out and said, I'm going to, you know, be a van life influencer, I think are going to realize like, oh my God, I can't really afford this. I, I need to pay for retirement and send my kids to college. I need a corporate job. Get me back in there. Oh my goodness. When you say van life, do you mean someone who's traveling around the country yeah. and like blogging about it? Yeah. <laughs> I love, I, I, not on that same vein, but I do think employers are going to have to be really thoughtful about what does this new workforce look like and what do they want? Like, what do employees want for their future? Like, is it more gig type work? Is it, does it have to be more value-based purpose-driven work? I, I think that piece is going to be interesting. Like how does the workforce and how employers utilize talent and employees, how does it shift and change moving forward? Oh my God. I mean, I think we might be going into like a golden era of accessing talent yeah. because I think it's never been easier to offer people a flexible way of working. It's never been easier to see actual progress, no matter when it happens. I, I know right. three or, I know three or four people that are doing really normal day jobs, but they're doing it from one is in the Mediterranean another one's in South America. Another person wow. moved to Hawaii and they're doing great. Yeah. And on the flip side, if I am a 
a CPG in Omaha, I can get the best talent in the world to work for me if I offer right. them the right stuff. Right. Like, how great is that? Right. Right. It like opens up the whole world. Yeah. Yeah. You're absolutely right. Yeah. So Pooja, thank you so much. This is great. I, I learned a lot. My brain is kind of firing. I'm, I'm sort of reconnected to the concept or to the topic of how do you fund product teams in a way that I, I haven't been. So thank you for that. Thank you. This has been awesome. And I'm kind of inspired as a leader again. So thanks. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for listening to Business Drivers presented by Farron. Find us at hellofarron.com to learn more about the work we do, sign up for our newsletter, and find articles and resources to help you grow as a leader. Or find us on Twitter at hellofarron or on LinkedIn. If you like what you heard, please tell a friend. It's the best way for us to grow our audience. We'd love to reach more people with the work that we're doing. And if you have ideas or advice or feedback or complaints, please reach out to us on Twitter or send us an email at bizdrivers at hellofarron.com. That's B-I-Z-D-R-I-V-E-R-S at hellofarron.com. Until next time, this is Jim Keen saying thanks.